Welcome to Genesis, the foundation of everything. If you're tuning into this particular podcast, this episode, uh, I wanted to just give you a little update. On the night that we actually taught this and we recorded it, we lost the first 20 minutes of the recording. So right now we're actually re-recording the first 20 minutes of the teaching, and so you'll notice a little bit of a discrepancy in audio quality. The first 20 minutes is obviously going to be a studio quality because literally I'm standing in a studio and re-teaching this. So as I'm doing this, we're going to just um, move forward, record it just as if we were there that, that particular Saturday night. So this is Genesis, the foundation of everything, the name of the message, famous or favored. We're going to be looking at Genesis 6, 5 through 22. In the future... Everyone will be famous for 15 minutes. This was the famous saying of artist and director Andy Warhol. You probably have heard this phrase, 15 minutes of fame. This is really a paraphrase of his original quote. Today, there is a preoccupation with fame and being famous. Just look around. People everywhere are trying to grab at least their own 15 minutes of fame. Now, most who want to be famous want more than 15 minutes of fame. But if you somehow grabbed your 15 minutes of fame, you might be able to parlay that into something bigger, something greater. And there are those people who have done that. From Joe the plumber to the Kardashians, we have seen those who have made the most out of their 15 minutes of fame. Joe the plumber went from questioning President Obama about redistribution of wealth to having his own political commentary website and blog. And then, of course, the Kardashians. They went from being the daughters of a famous L.A. lawyer who represented O.J. Simpson in his murder case to reality stars and now cultural icons. There is a belief held by most people that goes something like this. If I were famous... I'd have a better life. Or perhaps it's something like this. If I were famous, it would lead me to having a better life. Now, some famous people do have better lives than others, I guess, on a certain scale, on a certain measure of happiness or success. But tonight, I want to talk to you about something that you should seek and relish that will give you a better life. No, it isn't fame. It's the favor of the Lord. Here is a guarantee. If you receive the favor of the Lord, it will lead you to a better life, guaranteed. How's that? Well, Jesus says this, I have come to give you life and life to the full. The problem today is that too many spend all their energy seeking fortune and fame and the better life that this world has to offer. And the Lord has a life for you. He has a life for you. He has a better life with hope and a future too. So if you look out at the landscape today, nothing has really changed in regards to this in 4,500 years. That's how far we're looking back into Genesis 6. When we look back into Genesis 6, we're looking back roughly at 4,500 years ago. So we're going to go back to Genesis 6 tonight, back in our setting, and we'll see that nothing has changed. The world is ruled by these men of renown, these mighty men, but it also has been deeply, highly corrupted. Last week in our study, we actually had a guest speaker here, Dr. Michael Heiser, who is the resident scholar with Logos Bible Software, and he just happened to be by divine providence here on the very weekend that we would be looking into that first section in Genesis 6. And he came and taught that section, Genesis 6, 1 through 5, for us. And perhaps one of the biggest takeaways of that particular teaching is the explanation that we see in verse 5, that the watchers, the sons of God of Genesis 6, taught men things that sped up the corruption of mankind. 
To put it in Dr. Heiser's words, they taught men how better to corrupt and destroy themselves. What really happened in this union of these sons of God with the daughters of men that produced a race of giants called the Nephilim? We see it there in Genesis chapter 6, verse 4. It says this, There were giants on the earth in those days. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. You see, these were the mighty men of old, the men of renown, the men of world fame. But they were corrupt, and their corruption destroyed the minds and the lives of the people. And so we see the, the paraphrase, the, the, the kind of the conclusion of that section in Genesis 6-5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So this is kind of the summary verse of that section that dealt with the sin of the angels, the sin of the watchers. So you have the whole world that has been corrupted and all flesh had been corrupted, except, except God found a man who would not been corrupted by the way the world was. There was a man who was humble before the Lord. His name was Noah. And our text tonight tells us about Noah and how he found the favor of the Lord, and ultimately biblical fame as well. How's that? Well, we're reading about him right now, 4,500 years later. The question really is this, why should we seek the favor of the Lord, and how do we receive it? So let's look at this passage in the rest of Genesis chapter 6 and see how we can find and receive the favor of the Lord. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air. For I am, I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God. And Noah begot three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. What you see in this remaining portion of this chapter, Genesis chapter 6, is really, what I want you to see is it's really a stark contrast. It's a stark contrast between the world and the utter corruption and depravity and all of that of the world and, and that contrasted with a righteous man, a man who found favor in the eyes of the Lord. You see, in that first section, in Genesis 6, 1 through 4, there were these offspring of the unions between the watchers, the Beneha Elohim, and the daughters of men. These were the, the Nephilim, they were giants. These were the mighty men of old, the men of renown. And this is how they are described earlier in this chapter. They were described of the, of the, the men of renown, the, the, the famous ones of the, of the earth. Now, of course, this was written about 1,000 years or more after the events of Genesis 6. And as Dr. Heiser stated, the surrounding nations to Israel had their stories of these particular events, their version, so their spin, if you will. And Genesis 6 is really giving us Yahweh's perspective. It's, it's giving us the Lord's perspective. It's the straight truth. So really, it's, it was no spin. So Genesis can be seen really as the original no-spin zone. And this was the no-spin. Genesis 6-5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. This verse is in stark contrast to this one, the one that we see that we just read earlier in Genesis 6-8. It says this, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So we see this great contrast. We see the complete and de 
depraved wickedness of all the earth and 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 mankind is has the the every intent of the their thoughts was evil continually but noah found grace in the eyes of the lord what is grace the grace of the lord is really this it's the unmerited favor of god grace really is when we get what we don't deserve god just blesses us he he just showers his love and his blessing on us and it's completely unmerited it's undeserved god does it just because he wants to do it just because he wants to do it just just exactly like if if you uh, do something for someone else, and it's just because you want to do it. There's no particular reason. You just want to do it, and that's the grace of the Lord. That's the unmerited favor of the Lord. Now, there is a way to receive the grace of the Lord, the favor of the Lord. There is a, 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 a way, and there's really only one way. There is a place to be where the showers of his blessings and the grace of God pours out over you. And what's that? It's a place of humbleness before the Lord. We really, you have to humble yourself before God if you want to receive the grace of God, the favor of the Lord. Peter put it like this in his epistle, 1 Peter 5, 5. It says this, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. So we can see that God gives grace to the humble. He resists the proud. So the person that's out there that's just kind of in that prideful place, they're just, you know, just kind of doing their thing. They're kind of just going on in their life. And, and maybe even they're, uh, you know, angry with the Lord or shaking their fist at God or whatever it may be. They're just not in that humble place before God. God is resisting that. It's, it's not as if he doesn't want to give that person grace, but but there is a place to receive the grace and unmerited favor of the Lord, and it's a place of humility. It's where we humble ourselves before God. And Peter goes on in the very next verse in his epistle, 1 Peter 5, 6, he says, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. So first off, if you're taking notes, if you want to, be, if you want to receive the favor of the Lord, you've got to humble yourself before God. And really, when you think about it, when you look at it, this is the opposite characteristic that you see in many who seek fame, the fame of the world. Often you see pride, you see prideful arrogance, and you, you don't see a humility. You don't see someone who's humble before the Lord. You may get fame and perhaps some props from the world with that, but you won't, what you won't get is the favor of the Lord. You, you may get a better life by the world's standards. If, if you want to measure happiness and success by the world's definitions, the world's standards, you, you may have some of that. But the end of that path leads to destruction. It doesn't lead to ultimate joy. Humility before God leads to his unmerited favor. Humility before God leads to receiving his grace, which leads to life, to the full, both now, right now, in the here and now, and forever and ever. And so humility before God opens up the floodgates of us receiving the grace of the Lord, the unmerited favor, and that grace continues to pour out into our lives for now and on, on, on into eternity. The grace of God gives us forgiveness from sin. It's the grace of God that we receive where we receive the forgiveness of sin and we receive new life in him. It's through the grace of God that we receive the holiness of Christ. It's, and, and then that holiness produces a happiness in our lives, in our day-to-day -day lives. It gives us joy. The, the grace of God gives us joy deep down in our hearts. And it, it is a joy that is so awesome that you can't describe it. And so you can have all this by humbling yourself before the Lord, or you can go after fame and what the world has to offer. Now, I want to stop right there, and I want to offer a, a point of clarification. 
going after the fame of the world, when I'm talking about that, I'm talking about just in that prideful way, going after what the world has to offer and, and, and just kind of that idea of grabbing all the gusto from the world that you can get. This is not to be confused with pursuing a God-given dream and a vision. It's not to be confused with a calling, a calling of the Lord and a career and hard work and persistence and the success that that brings. You can do all that with this blessing of the Lord, with this seeking of the favor of the Lord. And it's not to be confused with this other aspect that I'm talking about in this study with going after the fame and the fortune that the world would have to offer us. The, the pursuing of a God-given dream and, and a calling and a career and putting your, your best foot forward, putting your, your best effort into it, that's going to lead to more and more of just the blessing of the Lord. But going the other direction, yeah, you may fill your life up with a bunch of stuff for the time being, but ultimately it will leave you empty. It will leave you with an empty feeling. And I, I've talked to people and I have friends that that have told me, they said, Charles, I've, 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 I've stayed at some of the nicest places in the world. I've, I've, I've looked at some of the greatest uh, sites in the world. I've done some of the, 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 the best things that the world has to offer. But in the end, if you don't have Christ, if you don't have the Lord, if you don't have the favor of the Lord, the grace of the Lord in your life, man, it, it just really is nothing. It leaves you empty, empty on the inside. And so, that's the difference. Now, there are the results of having humbled yourself. If you want to look at a life, two lives, if you look at the life, the person that's going after the, the fame and fortune and, 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 the, and what the world has to offer, and the life of the humbled person before God having received and continuing to receive his grace, there are results of finding favor with God. And so here, if you're taking notes, I want to give you three points here, three points, three things that are the results of finding favor with God. The first one is this, righteousness before God. A result of finding favor with God is that you have righteousness before God. The text here in verse 9 tells us that, Joe, uh, that Noah was a just man. Noah was a just man. He was justified by faith. He was justified by faith in the promise of the Lord. He looked forward to the promised seed of the Lord. You will remember that prophecy that the Lord gave in the context of the curse as it was being delivered to the man, to the woman, to the, to the serpent, to the nakash there in Genesis 3. And you will remember that promise that was in the middle of that in Genesis 3.15. Yes, there would be enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, but there would be this seed of the woman that would eventually come and bring a devastating blow to the seed of the serpent. And so those who followed God, those who were justified in God, were holding on to that promise of the coming seed of the Lord, of, of God. And so Noah was a man who looked forward to the promise of the seed of the Lord. If you go to Hebrews chapter 11, it's known as the faith, the hall of faith. You talk about the hall of fame. You talk about going after the fame and fortune of the world. Well, the Bible has a hall of faith. And in the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, it says this, By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. And so he received the righteousness, which is according to faith. He was justified, a just man. The uh, justification, being a justified person, is, is a good way to remember that is this. It's just as if I'd never sinned. It's where you receive the, the, the perfection of Christ. God gives you, he takes your life that, that's not perfect, that's, that's not justified, and he gives you his perfect life in exchange. And that's what it means to be a justified person. Noah, in that sense, is a picture of a believing Christian. He's justified by grace through faith in the Lord. And Paul put it this way to the Ephesians. And I'm going to kind of jump on Trey's uh, 
you know, step on his toes a little bit here on his, his uh, Wednesday night study here. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, this is the way Paul put it in terms of this contrast. He said, and you, he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, verse 3, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as the others. Okay, I read all that so that you could see this phrase here. We were by nature children of wrath. Okay, God in this text that we've read tonight has basically said, my wrath is going to be coming down upon the earth. I'm going to destroy the earth. <laughs> I am grieved that I have created the earth that has become corrupted. All flesh has been corrupted. And, and the world was under, they were by nature children of wrath. There's only one way out from under that, is to become the object, become the children of his mercy. You see, you're, you're, you're under one of two umbrellas. You were by nature children of wrath, just as the others, or you come and humble yourself before God, humbling yourself before him, and become objects of the children, the objects of his mercy. So you look at the contrast. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Mankind, in the stark contrast, mankind becomes objects, the objects of wrath. Noah becomes the object of God's mercy and grace. And this is exactly what Paul says in Romans chapter 9. Look at it. Chapter uh, 9, verse 23. That he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy. Okay? So in Ephesians, he's talking about the objects. Of, we were all by nature objects of wrath with the others, with everyone else. With everyone else. You know, that's why Jesus, when he came to Nicodemus, he says, I have not come into the world to condemn the world. If they don't have me, they're already condemned. We, we, we were by nature children of wrath. There's only one way out. To, to, to come to Christ that he may, might make known the riches of his glory on who? The vessels of his mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Wow. So you're no longer an object of wrath. You're an object of God's mercy. You're an object of God's grace. That's what you are. Christian, that's what you are. You're an object, you're a vessel of mercy. Now, the second thing, the first thing is righteousness before God. Secondly, here, these are the results of founding, finding favor with God. Secondly, perfection in Christ. Perfection in Christ. Look at it, look at it back at, at verse nine. Noah was a just man, we just covered that. Secondly, perfect in his generations. Perfect in his generations. We receive literally perfection in Christ. Noah was perfect in his generations. The word for perfect there in verse 9 in Genesis 6 is the Hebrew word. It's the Hebrew word tamim. This is the word. It's the Hebrew word tamim, and this is what it means. It means without blemish, it without defect, unblemished, Pertaining to, to having a good quality animal without handicap, implying a prime animal of high monetary value. Tamim. In, in other words, this is kind of like the, the, cream of the, the cream of the crop, the, the top of the flock, so to speak. Okay? Perfect. This is the word that is used of the condition that the Passover lamb was required to be. Tamim. Look at it, Exodus 12, verse 5. You'll see it. It says, your lamb, this, these are the instructions for the Passover. You know, remember they were to take a lamb into their household on the 10th of Nisan. And this was the instruction. Your lamb shall be without blemish. Without blemish, that's the word tamim right there. Your, your, your lamb shall be tamim. Without blemish, a male of the first year. Perfect. Perfect, without blemish. Now, specifically, what is 
this saying about Noah. Noah was perfect in his generations. He was tamim in his generations, in his genie, in his, in the generations. Okay, so what this is saying, and this is kind of tying in to the mischief that we read about and Dr. Heiser covered in the first few verses there. Remember this, this mischief that happened with the B'nai Hal Elohim, the sons of God, coming into the daughters of man and the Nephilim and all that. Okay, so there was this corruption of all flesh, right? Okay, so there's, the, the flesh was corrupted. The seed was tainted, in other words. It wasn't without defect. It was, there, was, there was, in that sense, a defect. And, and what this is saying is that Noah was tamim in, in his genealogy. There, there, was no, there was no scathing mark in, in the genealogy. So all the way back and proceeding all the way up to Noah, you have, he's perfect in his generations. He's, he's tamim. Okay? He was unscathed from the serpent seed of the watchers. In other words, his genealogy was clean. Now we know there came one who was Tamim in every way. There came one to be born upon the earth that was Tamim in every way that you could be tamim, okay? He was perfect in his generations. He was unscathed from the tainting of the serpent seed. He was unscathed. There's a, in, when we, we won't be there for a long time, I was going to say, you know, we get into the kings, you know, there was a king that actually did something. We don't have time to get into it. He did something so horrific that the Lord, he was in the line, the kingly line, and he did something so horrific that the Lord actually laid down a blood curse on his generations so that no one else from his bloodline would ascend to the throne. And this is in the genealogy of Christ but God does an incredible thing that he does a sidestep around the curse of Jeconiah. We don't even have time to get into it, but I'm just bringing it up here to just tell you that, he, that the Lord, when he showed up, he was tamim in every conceivable way that you could be tamim. He was perfect in all of his ways. The deal of the gospel is this, and I already mentioned it before. Here's the deal of the gospel. God makes us what Jesus is. He's the son of God. He makes us a son. Yes. Jesus was perfect. He was tamim. He makes us tamim. Yes. Amen? Remember when Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, the Sermon on the Mount. He says, therefore you shall be perfect just as your father in heaven is perfect. Amen. Well, how are we going to do it? You can't do it. It's a result of founding, having found favor in the eyes of the Lord and receiving the unmerited favor and grace of the Lord. It's a result of that. Perfection in Christ, tamim, in the Lord. In Christ, the believer becomes untainted by the corruption of the world. Amen? Amen. Thirdly, if you're still taking notes, and I haven't lost you, you still with me? Yes. Who's still with me? Yes. Who's just psyched? Just beyond comprehension. Just, yeah, yeah, tamim. I'm, gonna, I'm going home with that tonight. Yeah, tamim. <laughs> The third thing, the result of, the, of receiving the grace of the Lord is walking with God. Walking with God. Look at that verse 9 again. That he was a just man, perfect in his generations, and Noah walked with God. Noah walked with God. As a Christian, you've, you be, you've been made just, You've, you've come to the Lord, you've received his grace, his favor, unmerited. He's made you alive. You've received forgiveness of sins. He's made you just, a just person, justified. He's made you perfect. He's made you tamim. And then we get to walk with, we get to take a walk with him. Okay, come on. You got my grace, you got my favor. You're just now, you're perfect. Now, come on, let's take a walk. Amen. 
Let's take a walk. Well, how long is it going to be, Lord? For the rest of all your days. <laughs> Amen. Okay, that's a long time. Where are we going? We're going everywhere. We're going everywhere with the Lord because that's what our life is. For the day that we give our life to the Lord, our life is now a walk with him. We have a walk with the Lord. This is what people who have received the favor of the grace of the Lord do. This is what you do now. This, is like a, this isn't an option. This isn't like, oh, maybe I'll get around to it. You know, maybe, I, oh, no, no, no. This is what you do. If you're a Christian, if you're, if you're in line to receive the grace of the Lord, what you do is you take a walk with the Lord, and it's for the rest of all of your days. It's a walk with the Lord. It's a journey. Our life with the Lord is a walk. It's a journey. There are hills. There are valleys. There are times of refining. There are times of refreshing. We're on a journey with him, and this is how you need to see it. How do you see your life as a Christian? Well, I'm on a walk with the Lord. I'm, I'm on a journey with God. I, I, I'm walking from here through my life and straight into eternity. That's what I'm doing. That's how you need to see your life, Christian. I mean, years ago, Stephen Curtis Chapman, how many, how many even know that name now? Uh, there's, okay, good. I, that's, I'm surprised. Good job. Stephen Curtis Chapman. He's been coming through my feed lately because he lives in Nashville. You know, he's a Christian artist, and he's lived there for, for, I don't know, 30 years or whatever. And he's a Nashville Predators fan. And so he's, like, daily on his, like, you know, on his Facebook account doing like these predator songs and he's got the whole family and everybody and Will Franklin and Mary Beth and everybody and they all got their predator jerseys on and they're doing these crazy predator songs. So I don't even know where, is it game seven or I don't, I don't even know what happened with the Stanley Cup. But anyways, why did I bring that up? Oh, because Stephen... <laughs> <laughs> because Stephen Curtis Chapman years ago... <laughs> That's funny, man. When you're up here preaching, you gotta you gotta dial it back in. You're like, wait, where where was I out there on that one? Um, Stephen Curtis Chapman wrote a song years ago called "The Great Adventure." Anybody remember that song? And basically, what he said in the song is, you know, people will say, "Well, I'm not giving my life to the Lord because that's just a big bore. That's just a bore fest. That's just a killjoy. I'm not doing that." No, it's a great adventure. It's a great adventure to walk with the Lord. I'm so excited. I, I can't wait to see what God's going to do next. I can't, I can't wait to see what, what thing God's going to bring me through, what God's going to strengthen me to be able to accomplish for him, what, what I'm going to walk through in his power and his strength. I can't wait to see what he's going to do because it's a great adventure with him. And anybody who lives the Christian life and it's a bore fest is, is not living the Christian life. You're, you're, you're doing it wrong, right? You know, it's like, you know, back to, you know, I don't want to quote that movie, but anyways, you're doing it wrong. It was Mr. Mom. It was back, back there, you know. <laughs> North to pick up and south to drop off. Remember, we was picking up the kids from the elementary school. <clears throat> You're doing it wrong, right? It's a great adventure. It's a walk with the Lord. Now, later in our Genesis series, I don't know how long it's going to take us to get there, but and eventually we're going to get there, and we're going to get to the place where Jacob wrestles with the Lord. He wrestles with the Lord. And so not only, okay, so, the, so our relationship with God is, is, it's two W's. It's a walk and it's a wrestling match, okay? <laughs> a wrestling match, really? We get to wrestle with the Lord? Yes, yes, he's a wrestler. Don't you know this? We're gonna get to it in Genesis. He wrestles with the Lord and the text tells us that he wrestles with him all night. And he says, I won't let you go until you bless me. I won't let you go. This is our walk with the Lord. This is our wrestle with the Lord. You know, people say, well, you can't, you can't, have, you, you can't have this kind of struggle with the Lord. Yeah, you can. It's okay. It's okay. God can handle whatever it is that's rattling around in your little head. Okay, he can handle it. He can handle any doubt that you have any fear, any struggle, anything that you got going on, he can handle it and just wrestle with him for a little bit. Yeah. And just hang on to him through the whole thing. Yes. 
and he's going to bless you. He's going to bless you, and he's going to leave you with that thing that lets you know that you're his and that you're walking with him. He got up from that. God touched him in the socket of his hip, and from that moment forward, that next morning forward, Jacob walked with a limp, and that limp was a, a reminder for the rest of his life that he wrestled with God and got the blessing of God. In fact, in the, in the, la, the second to last chapter in Genesis, when, when Jacob calls all of his sons to, to bless them, right? It says Jacob, when he gets to blessing Joseph, it says Jacob, and leaning on his staff, and leaning on his staff from his hip socket that was touched from wrestling with the Lord. He blessed each of Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. So it's a walk and a wrestle. Ooh. It's a walk and a wrestle. We walk with him in his favor, and it's the best place to be. Oh, I wrote this earlier, and I, I, I don't want to skip this. He wrestled him and said, I will not let you go until you bless me. It's a picture for us that the Christian life is one of wrestling and walking with God. We wrestle with him through our doubts and fears. We walk with him as he leads us to still waters and green pastures, that picture of peace and provision. If you wrestle with him, he'll walk you to the still waters and to the green pastures. We walk with him in his favor, and it's the best place to be. Do we have, we have time to wrap this up? Do we? It's 10, 10 minutes. Okay, so we got 10 minutes. Everybody still with me? Yes. Amen? Yes. Amen? Everybody having fun? Yes. Okay, good, good. Last point. Stake your life on, the, on God's word. Yes. Seek the favor of the Lord, number one. Secondly, stake your life on God's word. Let's pick it up, verse 13. And God said... To Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will, restore, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and outside with pitch. And this is how you shall make it. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits, its width 50 cubits, and its height 30 cubits. And you shall make a window for the ark, and you shall finish it to a cubit from above and set the door of the ark in its side and you shall make it with lower second and third decks and behold I myself am bringing floodwaters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh which is beneath which which is the breath of life everything that is on the earth shall die but I will establish my covenant with you and you shall go into the ark, you, your sons and your wife and your son's wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort in the, in the ark to keep them alive with you. And they shall be male and female of the birds after their kind, of the animals after their kind, of every creeping thing of the earth after its kind. Two of every kind will come to you and keep, to keep them alive. And you shall take for yourself of all food that is eaten and you shall gather it to yourself and it shall be for food for you and for them. And verse 22, thus Noah did according to all that God commanded him, so he did. Here's the point, Christian. Stake your life on the word of God. Stake your life on it. The believer trusts the word of the Lord. Christian, you need to stake your life on the word of God. Look, what, what really becomes of Noah's testimony? Well, we see it there in the last verse there that we just read. Look at it, verse 22. Thus Noah did, according to all that God commanded him, so he did. Thus Noah did, so he did. What? According to all that God commanded him. Look at verse 13. This is how... The section that we just read, this is how it starts. And God said to Noah. And God said to Noah. Verse 22, go back to verse 22. Thus Noah did. 
God said to Noah, thus Noah did according to all that God commanded him. So he did. So he did. So he did. Is the testimony of Noah. God told Noah to build an ark. This is what we just read. <laughs> this is where we're to Noah's ark. This is where God told Noah to build the ark. We just read it. God told Noah to build an ark, and he told him exactly how to do it. I'm going to just hang there for just a second on that verse 13. Go back to that verse 13. And God said to Noah. I want to skip over that too quick. God said to Noah. God is speaking to you. God has given us his word. God is speaking to you. And when God's word, what we need to do is we need to stake our lives on it, Christian. We need to realize that just as it says here, and God said to Noah, God is speaking to me through his word. God is speaking to you through his word. And so you could put your, your name in, you know, take, take Noah out and put your name in there, okay? And God said to John, and God said to John, and then skip down to verse 22, and so John did everything according to what the Lord commanded, so he did, okay? So you put your name in there, and God said to Charles. And so Charles did everything that God commanded him to do, so he did. God told Noah how to build the ark. He told Noah how wide it was to be, how tall it was to be, how long it was to be, how many decks it was to have. It was, it was 300 cubits long. A cubit is like 18 inches, okay, roughly. That's a short cubit. There's a long cubit, 22 inches. I, I think it was probably the shorter. It'd be crazy if it was 22. If we get to heaven and we find out, man, a cubit was 22 inches. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> this is crazy, God. What'd you do? The ark was 450 feet long. It was 75 feet wide. It was 45 feet high. It had three decks. It was like the original cruise ship. Right? Some of you, some of you like cruising and stuff. Noah did it too. <clears throat> and then there were all the details about bringing the animals onto the ark to preserve them. How many? Two. Two of every kind to preserve them. To keep them alive from this, the devastation, the destruction that God was going to bring. God even gave him instruction on bringing food with him onto the ark. Can you imagine if he, he did everything and then he gets on the ark and then Noah's wife comes up to him and says, hey, honey, where's the food? Oh, we forgot that. <laughs> we, forgot, we forgot the food. No, thank God that God told him to bring the food on the ark. We just read it. Amen? God knows what you need. Sometimes we forget. We think, oh, no, I know what I need. No, God knows what you need. If you'll just listen to him, if you'll just listen to him, he'll, he's got it figured out. Amen? Amen? All these instructions, if you look at them all, and we're not going to reread them. Okay, you can do that. They're all about living. Everything that he did was about putting something together that was going to be about living, about doing something for the Lord, this thing that God wanted to do and preserving life, the life of his family and the life of all the animals that would join him on the ark. It was about living. And so the Bible, the word of the Lord is about living. Amen? It, tell, it tells us how to live. It tells us how to treat each other. It, it tells us how to work. It tells us how to save money. It tells us how to be a parent. It tells us how to be a husband, a wife. It tells us how to be a son, a daughter. It, it tells us how to be an employee. It, it tells us how to run our business. It, it, tells us, it tells us how to live. It teaches us how to live. The word of God is for the living yes. because it teaches us how to live. Amen? Now listen to this. When you receive the grace of the Lord 
and all those things become a part of your life that go with result from receiving the favor of the Lord, you become a person of his word. And this is actually what happens when you walk with God, he makes you a person of his counsel. Let me say that again. Christian, when you walk with God, and that's what you're supposed to do because that's the Christian life, that's what it's all about. He makes you a person of his counsel. What? Of his counsel? Yes, the word of God is the counsel of the, word, the Lord. Paul refers to it in the book of Acts as the entire counsel of the word of God. He tells the Ephesian elders when he is saying goodbye to them on the beach at Miletus, he is telling them, I am, not, I am innocent of the blood of all men because I have not shunned to declare to you all of the counsel of God. Christian, you become a person of his counsel. The counsel of the word of God. That's what he makes you. I mean, we got to start realizing what it is that the Lord has done and not allowing the world to tell us, well, this and that and that, and that ain't cool. No, I'm a, I'm a person of the counsel of the word of God. That's who I am. You can scoff at it all you want to. And they did scoff. And they did scoff. As Noah built the ark for 100 years. Now, I got to hurry. I've run out of time. Hang with me for two more minutes. So Noah did what God commanded him to do. How specifically? How specifically did he do what God commanded him to do? He proclaimed to the world that judgment was coming. Where does it say that? Where does it say that Noah proclaimed to the world that judgment was coming? He built an ark in his front yard. (laughs) And as he built the ark, it would have probably gone something like this. This is his neighbor. Somebody from the neighborhood walking up. Hey, Noah, what are you doing? I'm doing what God told me to do. Oh, yeah, what's that? Well, God told me to build an ark. Why? Well, he's going to destroy the world with a flood. And the only way you'll be saved is if you have one of these. (laughs) Right? You better listen to the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord said he's going to bring a flood. He's going to destroy the earth with a flood. And he's got me building this ark. And the only way that you're going to live is if you have one of these two. And what did they do? They scoffed. The world scoffs at the word of God. They've been scoffing at the word of God from the beginning. That's no different. There's not, nothing's changed in 4,500 years, okay? Okay, Christian? No, nothing has changed for 4,500 years. So they're going to scoff, and they're going to laugh, and they're going to say, ah, no, that's, that God stuff's not for me. That word of the Lord, that Bible stuff, you know, that Bible stuff, that's not for me. No, you can do that. You can do all that stuff and go over to that place on Saturday nights in that room, you know, where they've got these TVs and stuff, and you can just listen to that. And it's not for me, the Bible stuff. That Yahweh God stuff, no, I'm, that's not, I'm, I'm, I'm not with that. Now think about it for a second. Six months later, he's still out there building the ark. Six years later, he's still out there building the ark. Sixty years later, he's still out there telling his neighbors. The same people walk by. And Noah is just swinging his axe. He's cutting wood. He's hammering wood, gopher wood and pitch and tar and all of it. He's doing it up. 
He's just swinging his hammer, putting the ark together. And every blow of his axe and every strike of his hammer was a call to those people to repentance. It was a call to them really to prepare an ark for themselves. You say, Charles, what? What? What are you saying? Couldn't they have just gotten on the ark? All my life I've thought, well, why didn't anybody else get on the ark? You mean to tell me Noah and his wife and his three sons and their three kids, eight people? The Bible tells us in the, note, the, the, the New Testament, eight souls were saved. Eight souls out of the whole thing were saved. You mean no one got on the ark? And I thought about it this week. What if 10,000 people had said, Noah, we're, we, we think you're right? They couldn't have all got on his ark, right? With, not with him, with, with the family and all the animals. They would have had to have their own ark. God, God is saying something to you. He's saying something to me. And he's saying something about what he wants us to do in our lives. And we've got to respond to it for ourselves. And in that, as we respond to the word of the Lord, he is doing a life-saving work in our lives as individuals. Yes. Amen? Amen? And collectively as the body of Christ. Wow. Man, think about that just for one second. I'm, 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 I'm done. But I've got to get this one, and this one's too good. This one is too good. You're going to love this. If 10,000 people had responded to the message of Noah, Noah would have been the first person to say, we're going to need a bigger boat. <laughs> I, I had to get that one in there. Oh. <laughs> they would have there would have been then this call to it was the, there was the call to repentance to repent of their ways and to heed the word of the Lord and to build more arcs of safety here's the point point we're called to hear receive and obey the word of the Lord and in doing so we continue to receive the favor of the Lord and receive the life that he has for us you see? And there is a way that seems right, the Bible says. And then there's the word of God. There's a way that seems right, and then there's the word of the Lord. And we're called to, and Noah did, Noah staked his life and the life of his family on the word of God. And so, in closing, which are you going to pursue? The fame of the world or the favor of God? Fame or favor, choose wisely.